Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. I hang out over here and uh, come and say hi. I would love to meet you. At CBC, we have this phrase we like to dwell on at the beginning of the teaching time. It goes like this. The move of the Spirit is inward to conviction, not outward to critique. What we mean by that and what the Scriptures mean and what the sermon was on when we started this series two weeks ago is that God begins to transform communities through individuals. He begins to change others through a changed you that so much, it's so much harder sometimes to look inward before we look outward. But that's the call of the gospel. And so we start this morning by saying our culture likes to criticize and critique because I think we have pride issues. But, but the place of the church begins by the Holy Spirit changing us. And so we begin this morning as we open up the scripture by simply asking the Lord, the Holy Spirit, the present and active God in this space, where are you speaking to me today? Holy Spirit, where am I being convicted for the greater good so that people might see the beauty of Jesus? So we're just gonna take a second. I'm gonna lead us through a prayer. Ask that you do a little praying to yourself and then pray for me. And I don't know, pray for no fires today, all right? And then we'll get into the text. Let's pray together. God, I'm thankful, like Andy said, just to be here. I'm thankful that you're worthy um, of us gathering together. I'm thankful that this is a space and a place where we can come together and recognize that we need a God that's bigger than us to help order our lives and give value and meaning and define good. I'm thankful. As we open the text this morning, Holy Spirit, teach us, convict us, show us how we can mold our lives into the ways of Jesus so that we might see that he's good. If you're comfortable, just and I just take a couple seconds and say a quiet prayer and ask that the Holy Spirit speaks to your spirit this morning. That's you pray for me that the preparation that was put into this might do a good job of, of showing us what God wants to teach us together, that my words are clear and kind at the same time, and that we leave this space with a more eagerness to worship the God who's worthy of it. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. So today we're going to talk about love a little bit. This is a church. It's the place to do it. And I've always found love is a particularly intriguing topic, mostly because it is one of the most overused words in our language. We talk about love as flippantly as possible and then also as seriously as possible. There's different cultural ways that we've defined this. The Beatles would say that all you need is love, yeah? I've heard this phrase a lot, love means never having to say you're sorry. Don't agree with that, but I've heard that a lot. My wife would say that I agree with that. Uh, some others that I like, the Jerry Maguire love, you complete me kind of love. That's just a disaster waiting to happen. Uh, Plato said this, love is a grave mental disease. <laughs> I think that dude was single. Um, 
Woody Allen has this quote I love. I was nauseous and tingly all over. I was either in love or I had smallpox. One writer says, love is blind, marriage is the eye opener. <laughs> the great Ian Cook, if you've been around this community for a while, you probably know him, used to tell this story all the time. He, I, was, I, I led a group with him for years, and so I heard it a dozen times. He said it in front of his wife and not in front of his wife. He would tell this to high school kids. He does not work with high school kids anymore. But he would say to high school kids, if you want to know what love is, lock your wife and your dog in the trunk of your car. <laughs> Don't do that. And then at the end of the day, come back and see who's happy to see you. <laughs> right? He, he loved it. He could get away with it. He's a little older, and he just knew he didn't really mean it, and his wife Dottie would every time, Ian, you know, it was just great. I loved it. The, the question we have today is, especially in this, church, in this church in Rome that we're kind of diving into a little bit in this epistle, there's two kind of not warring but not also agreeing factions. You got the Jewish followers of Jesus and the Roman, the Gentile followers of Jesus. And so what Paul's going to do is start by saying, let's talk about what love looks like in our community. Because if you've been following us at the beginning of chapter 12, he said the, the, the new community you're building together begins with what God is doing inside of you. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is your spiritual act of service. This is our worship to one another is we allow the Holy Spirit to penetrate our hearts and minds and change us individually. And then we look out and say, look what God is doing together. And then last week, Pete was up here and he talked about the value of humility, that Humility isn't necessarily thinking of myself less, but thinking, thinking less of myself, but thinking of myself less. And so what Paul's doing is he's making a case from God is doing something inside of me to it's not all about me. And then there's a void there, a space there. And the Holy Spirit, hopefully at that point, fills that space with compassion and grace and kindness and love for other people. Because if we talk about the idea that, that maybe I'm not the central character in my story, there's a void there that we have to fill with thoughts and affections and actions. And you could fill that with Dallas Cowboy thoughts if you want to. You could fill that with, I don't know, let's pick another football game that might have just happened, the Red River Riot. That's right, I named it, everybody. All right? That's right. You, you could fill it with those things. But what the Holy Spirit would say is we fill that space where we're not thinking about us with affections for others. We, we would say that the inward move towards humility motivates us to love others. It sparks an action and affection for one another. And so then he picks up today and he says, so let me define love for you. Today's text is an interesting one. There's about three of these kinds of texts that Paul writes in the New Testament. And, and what it is and why it's interesting is there's not a clear line of thought and a clear 10-word answer to what his point is. He's kind of going to dump the truck on what he thinks love is. And there's 13 adjectives and there's 10 about love specifically we're going to get into. And he's kind of saying, here's a bucket list of all the things I think are included in love. I drive a 2008 red pickup truck right now. And you're looking at me thinking, of course you do. You look like it. And in, in the last year that I've driven that car, the check engine light's been on the entire time. And there's tools now that you can plug into the car and it'll tell you, it'll run a diagnostic check and it'll check all these systems and it'll return like, hey, you got a problem with this, you know? I'm on my third gas cap. I'm gonna fix this issue, but <laughs> I don't know what it is yet. For Paul, he's saying, this is your diagnostic test for what love is. So we're gonna walk down this list together and it's gonna kind of be a shotgun approach, meaning we're gonna cover a lot of ground and not go very deep on any of it. But it's Paul's way of saying, if we're gonna define love in this church that, mo that moves from what God is doing to you, to you thinking less of yourself, into now we feel that space with love for others, these are the quality and characteristics that it's going to take on. 
And so he starts by saying, love must be without hypocrisy. It's kind of the title or the thesis statement of the next two and a half, three verses. He's going to say, this is where we begin. Love is motivated from motives that start because you actually care. That, that word hypocrisy there is a Greek word that talks about literally, you don't put on other masks when you talk to people. It comes from plays and acting and thespians. And so what he's going to say at the beginning is where we start, where love begins. It's a sincere affection motivated from your heart for the hearts of others. The inward move towards the motivation is at the heart of the gospel because God wants all of you who he created. This is the Beatitudes. This is God saying action by itself is not enough for my kingdom. I want more than just you to look good on Sundays and act peaceably and say bless you, brother, when you meet people. I want you to actually care for people. That's the only way of the kingdom. God calls us beyond a simple superficiality into a deepening of motive that, that, that drives our heart for one another because God wants all of us. He created all of you and he gets all of you. What, what, what Paul starts with is this radical notion in that day that, that how you felt about people motivates your action towards others. What he's saying there is you can do things for the wrong reason and God's not very happy about it. Look at the whole Old Testament sacrificial system. He's calling us into a depth of love that's motivated from a heart that is transformed. And he starts by saying, you will have a deep love for one another that's motivated from your changed heart and soul. And he starts by saying, this is what love is. And Jesus talks about it, and Paul talks about it, and Paul says, love is the first priority of the new believers in Jesus. And so the first question I ask today is, am I, am I a loving person? If you have been with us for a while, I told a story about two years ago, and it's one of those moments when I didn't realize what I said until I got out of the room and then everybody told me I said it wrong. Uh, I was talking about my New Year's resolutions and I wanted to do a better job of waking up early in the morning before my small children. <clears throat> so I said for about 40 minutes, my goal is to beat my kids up in the morning. <laughs> I didn't hear it. <laughs> and then I get out of the room and I was informed by about 400 people that I said something wrong, you know. And they said, do, do you want to rephrase it? I said, no, I just want to beat them up. And then, I, and then I heard it and I was like, that's not what I meant, you know. And so it's still my goal now is I try to get up before my kiddo and we have this clock in her room, the one that wakes up and walks out. And it goes from blue to pink when she's allowed to leave her room. She doesn't listen. And I will get out and I'll get on the couch and it's dark and hopefully peaceful. And in the mornings I try to read something or there's a devotional app I like to use, a little prayer, meditation, reflection. And so I'm in the middle of that, and I can hear her door open from the other side of the house because it needs some WD-40, but I'm not going to give it because it's a warning signal for me, you know? And I can hear her door open, and more often than I want to admit, while I'm having a devotional, my response is not kind. My response is, why is my kid up? Go back to bed, you know? It's that juxtaposition of in literally trying to be formed like Christ, I have a response that's not being formed like Christ. The question we begin with is, am I, are we a loving people? That's where Paul starts. And then he moves on. He says, you're going to abhor what is evil. You're going to cling to what is good. That word cling there is the same word we get in Corinthians 6.16 when he says that you're going to leave and cleave, essentially. It's, it's the intimacy between a married couple. You're going to cling to one another. That means there's no division between the end of something and the beginning of something else. You are that close. You're going to abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. And why this is really important 
is, is Paul's going to say, you're going to love one another and it's going to be motivated from the right place. That's your first checkbox of what I want to tell you. The second one is that love is grounded in the goodness of God, not whatever you want love to be grounded in. And that's very important because we live in a world where love is whatever I define it, however I define it, however I feel it. And that's not how the gospel defines love. He says you're going to abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. And in the scriptures, in the scriptures, what is good is what is the ways of God. We live in a world that more than ever has uh, high, the highest levels of self-worship. We put ourselves at the center of every story. It's part social media's fault and our fault and, 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 and peewee soccer's fault where everybody gets a trophy, don't even let me get started on it. It's all of these things that teach us that we're the center of our universe. And what the gospel calls us into is God allowing him and his goodness and his character to define good, not us. And that's going to hit against our maybe wants and desires sometimes. I love what Ignatius of Loyola said. Sin is an unwillingness to trust that what God wants from me is only my deepest happiness. If your desires fly in the face of God's desires, I have to get to that place where I trust him more than I trust me. That's what it means to allow God to be the Lord of your life and that you be the Lord of God's life for you. It's a deepening of your understanding and trust for the goodness of God. And I mean, there are stats on how actually if you follow into the ways of Jesus, it's better for you. Marriages are healthier. Kids are healthier. There's a couple studies that actually talk about church attendance leads to a longer life. And some would say up to seven years, everybody, you know. There are all these numbers practically and pragmatically that point us to the idea that even if you don't see it, God's good for you is your best good question is, do we trust it? When Paul says love, he doesn't leave that up to your definition and description. He says, you're going to love, and here's what it means to love. I'm going to ground the idea of loving in the goodness of God. When I was prepping this week, I kept thinking about this one movie that um, I, I loved growing up. I even loved in my early 20s. One of the beautiful things about having small children is it allows me to watch Disney movies and not feel like a creepy guy that watches them when I'm 28 and single, you know? One of my favorite Disney movies from my childhood on is The Incredibles. I loved that movie. And there's a scene in the movie at the very end during the last battle scene. And this guy, uh, Frozone, is talking. You probably know what I'm talking about. He, he's talking about um, trying to find his, his little suit. And I'm just going to quote it. He says, honey, where's my super suit? Talking to his wife. And she says, why do you want it? And he said, we're talking about the greater good. And she says, greater good, I'm your wife. I am the greatest good you're ever going to get, you know? <laughs> and all the men said, yeah. <laughs> so he begins by saying, men, here's what you guys are going to do after you look inward and after you empty yourself of, of, of all the pride that you have, is you're going to focus on others in that space. You're going to love one another, and that starts by understanding that God gets to define it. It's grounded in his goodness. He starts with love grounded in God's goodness. He says, this is our best good together as the community of God. So we ask the question, am I a loving person? And then it follows with, does my idea of love line up with God's idea of goodness? And then what he's going to do is, in the next two verses, there's going to be 10 words that describe love. And they're actually uh, characteristics, but in the language, they're, they're in the imperative. So there's no verbs here, not a ton. It's just meant to be seen as commands. So when he says, like, don't lose your zeal, that's a command to be zealous. 
and there's 10 of them, and it starts with two homonyms. At the beginning, the word for love, brotherly love. At the end, the word for hospitality are very, very similar. So he's encapsulating a thought. Now he's defined love. He's going to say these are the characteristics of it. These are the branches on the tree. And we move from a place last week where he talks about your spiritual gifting that can vary from person to person into things that we must do together as a community. Love is not an option for you as a follower of Jesus. It's just not optional. And so these lists of things, we don't get to check and say, you know what, I'm just not a zealous person. That's somebody else's job. My job is to be fervent in prayer. This is not like when I was growing up, chores in the family household. Some of my friends got allowances. And I said, Dad, can I get an allowance? He said, no, you're part of the family. You know, we work for one another. And I couldn't go to my dad in the summer when he says, you know, go. My least favorite job was raking the grass because my dad was too cheap to buy a bag. He had children. And so we would have to go and rake it. And it's 102 degrees outside and it's itchy. I couldn't go to my dad in that moment and say, hey, Bobo, let me tell you something. I know that job needs to be done, but I'm much more of a dishwasher unloader guy in July. So (laughs) I'll catch you in October, you know. It's not optional. The list that Paul is describing here is for you, it's for me, it's a non-optional list of what love looks like. And so he starts with this, be devoted to one another with mutual love. I, in a world that defines love by passion, I really enjoy that Paul here begins by not defining love by passion, but by dedication. It talks about how our desire is driven by what we're devoted to, whether you want to or not. And that word mutual love there is a familiar word, familial word in the Greek. It's only used, it's only used to talk about your family. And Paul says, the way you love one another is the same way you love the people that gave birth to you and you gave birth to. I love what Desmond Tutu says about family. He says, you don't choose your family, they're God's gift to you as you are to them. Someone else would say, you cannot choose your family, but you can ignore their phone calls. (laughs) It's more my speed. I love what George Burns says, happiness is having a large, loving, caring, close-knit family in another city. (laughs) Or my favorite definition of family from Ray Romano, having children is like living in a frat house. Nobody sleeps, everything's broken, there's a lot of throwing up. (laughs) What Paul's doing is he's dramatically redefining the role of family in the first century. He's saying in this split church between Jew and Gentile, between people that had different policies on politics and different policies on, on what they looked forward to in their families, different rhythms of family, different everything, grew up in different socioeconomic status, free men, enslaved men, and conquered and conquerors. This is the hodgepodge of the church. And he looks at these different people and he says, hey, Jewish guy, you're going to love this Roman guy like you love your son. Radically profound. We do not love like that in the church anymore. I wish we did. It's hard. He's redefining love in the church as defined by love in the family in a culture where your family good was your best good and not an individualistic culture, but a corporate culture in a culture where your family gave you identities, looking at two different people and saying, love them like you love them. Radical concept. And so he starts by saying, this is love. It's grounded in the goodness of God. And it's in you are devoted to one another. It's the idea that culture tells us that we love the way we feel, but the Bible tells us that we love because we're dedicated to the good of others. And that's how God loves us. That's why Jesus says to love our enemies. That's why Paul says to love people. That's why God loves us in the Old and New Testament that never goes away, that's constantly devoted to you regardless of what you do. It's grace. Love is a daily decision of devotion to one another. 
you got to understand, man, in the first century world too, they, especially the Jewish people in Rome, they didn't have a lot. All they had was one another. We live in a culture that's incredibly crowded with clutter. Good, bad, and indifferent. I have a lot of stuff at my house, a lot of kids, you know? And clutter is not bad, but sometimes what it can do is it can get in the way of what's better. A friend of mine from college lives in Florida, and she posted this week, she's in the middle of the hurricane, and she said they have two small children. And they started, the flooding started, and they got up to the next floor in their house, and then they finally at one point were up in the attic. And it was her and her family, and she said, for the first time in my life, I was scared for my family, and I'd never been scared for my family before. And that post didn't mention anything about all the stuff that got destroyed. In the first century church, what Paul is saying is, look, you're devoted to one another because that's your best good. And in a culture full of stuff, sometimes we forget that because it's crowded by clutter. So the question is, am I a devoted person to those around me? He continues showing eagerness in honoring one another. So if love is God's good, if love is a mutual devotion to one another, like we love our own flesh and blood, then he continues to say, showing eagerness in honoring one another. To honor someone is to rightly value the contributions that they have in our community. Yesterday, I had a, a hang with a friend of mine and her daughter, and then I took my daughter, and her daughter's, his daughter's six. You walk into their living room, and there is this thing hanging down from the middle over their kitchen island, and it's this kid art, six-year-old kid art. You guys, you want to know if it was good? It was six-year-old kid art. It's terrible, okay? <laughs> um, it was not good. It was not a Picasso. It was not good at all. But I saw it, and I said, you know what? Hey, this is so beautiful. And the six-year-old said, I know. <laughs> That's right. And I thought to myself, I like you, <laughs> you know? You and me going to get along. The six-year-old looked at me and her dad and said, I know. And I thought, man, that is really what we're talking about. We talk about showing eagerness and honoring one another. Honoring somebody else is allowing them the recognition of the contribution they have in our collective goodness. So we're a culture that fights for honor, and the gospel culture fights to give honor away is the difference. This six-year-old, like, yeah, I know I'm pretty good. Instead of saying, yeah, I mean, I'm pretty good, but really my dad worked to buy the paper and the marker, so he's at part in my goodness because of all the contributions he made to this picture. It says, be eager in honoring one another. We live in a world that fights for credit, but a gospel community fights to give it away. That's what love is. Am I a person that fights to give credit away or fights to get credit for myself? It says, do not lag in zeal, but be enthusiastic in spirit. Serve the Lord. Zeal is a combination of both haste and diligence. I'm not going to get too deep into the numbers, but if there's one problem I think that we have in the church right now in the West and in a fluent church is we have lost zeal for the things of God. You can look at the numbers on the rise of the nuns and the duns, the people that are done with religion or just kind of done with church because you know what? They've been here for a long time and they've heard all the sermons. And brunch is more fun sometimes on Sunday. I get that. But, but, but what Paul is describing as love is zeal, enthusiasm, and spirit in serving the Lord. I feel like sometimes we've forgotten that we're called to be zealous about the things of God for the people of God so that they might see the goodness of God. The biggest threat to our spiritual lives isn't the big disaster. It's losing our passion for God slowly over time. It's the silent, slow leak of forgetting that God is our best good that slowly deflates our passion. So when Paul's talking about what love is, he's saying you can't love somebody halfway. You can't love somebody at a walk. We love at a sprint. 
saying do not lag in zeal. The word play there in the Greek is literally working like you're a slave and working like you're a free man. If you're a slave for somebody else's good, you don't work with quite as much enthusiasm as if you're working on commission. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Go get after it. And so he says, do not lag in zeal. Be enthusiastic in spirit. And the, the word picture there is a pot that's boiling over with water. Like you can't contain it or keep it in. Uh, one commentator says it's better translated set on fire by the spirit because this work is not just done by us. It's done to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. That we show up and then allow God, as some commentators say, to light the fire of the spirit so that it can be lit aglow in our life. So, so with zeal, we show up and allow the spirit of God, the goodness of God to captivate us. But these three are put together because it's don't lag in zeal, be enthusiastic, but your enthusiasm has to be well-suited and driven somewhere good, which is serving the Lord. Because enthusiasm without any bounds, that's not bridled by something that's better, sometimes can go amok. Here's your soccer story for the week, everybody. I coach a team of three and four-year-old girls. It's the highlight of somebody's week. And I had <clears throat> a game this last week. And you, you want to think my team has? My goodness, we have passion. You know what we don't have? Passion for soccer. Okay. <laughs> I, I, several times we played two games this week and I will look over on my little blue blanket and I got girls, we need another person to come play. And they were like, no, I'm good. <laughs> I'm like, hey, can you come play? No, <laughs> I don't know what to do at that point. That's not my child. I can't really do anything that has any kind of action with it and I wouldn't want to. I, I, I feel like sometimes when I'm coaching this team, we have all the passion in the world. There's one field we play on. And it's got like a little hole in the middle of it. And instead of following the soccer ball, all the girls are fighting over who can stand on the hole. At any given moment, you will find more of my girls on the soccer team trying to hang on the soccer goal than kick the soccer ball. We have all the passion and zeal in the world. We just don't put it in the right place. What, what Paul says is love is all the things we've talked about, but it's also a passionate zealousness for one another that's driven towards, bridled by this idea that it's used in the service of God. My loving person. Paul would say it this way, am I passionate about serving God's people in ways that honor him? It says rejoice in hope, endure in suffering, persist in prayer. The next triad here, you see this triad throughout the New Testament, hope and suffering and prayer. What I love about the biblical idea of hope and, and why it's, it's tantamount to how we love is because our hope is different than the hope from people, than, than the hope of the world. Our promised hope as followers of Jesus is different because our promised hope is delivered and the rest of the world just has a possible hope that might be. My, my, my favorite definition of this, my favorite example of this, I've used a couple times is back in the day, I used to not have any kind of recording ability on TV. We used to, I used to have bunny ears for several years after I got married. Man, I'm cheap, people. I'm very cheap. Let's take a tie. Um, I think I would ask my dad. We had two services then, and so we had a service at 1045, and if I was teaching, we'd be done by 1230. And, and I would say, hey, dad, can you record the Cowboys game for me? And he said, Absolutely. Because Cowboys games are very important, and with each year, they become less and less important. But they would start the game. My dad would record it. It would be there by like one, give or take halftime, and we'd watch that game very differently. I'd say, Dad, are you going to watch the game? Please don't watch the game. I don't trust you. Your poker face is terrible. Do not watch the game. I won't watch the game. Man lied to me every single time. 
I literally remember the first time, it's the first quarter, I forget what game, and, and Dak was playing, and he threw an interception, and I'm, you know, freaking out, because the, the possibility of my hope is diminishing based on what I see in front of me, and my dad sits back on the couch, he goes, just wait, <laughs> and I said, have you watched it? He said, Yeah. <laughs> We end up winning the game, but the difference in hoping is that he knows where this is going. He knows how the game ends. He knew all the things about it. I sat there in anguish. He sat there in joy because his perspective was different because what he hoped in was already delivered. This is what happens when Jesus rose from the dead. Is we have a hope that's actualized, that's delivered upon, that's promised, that we can see and we can know that Jesus came back from the dead and he's coming back again. This is why our hope is different. Hebrews says it like this in 10.23. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he who's promised uh, is faithful. And then he says in the middle of that persistent prayer, because, because we lose hope when we lose consistency in prayer. Prayer is the fuel that drives our hope forward each and every day. Prayer is the way that we remember that God is trustworthy. Prayer is the way that we keep our hope alive when suffering gets really bad because it will. That's a promise. Prayer is the way that we consistently remind one another that God's worthy of our prayers. That's why for much of the history of the church and the Jewish people, God commanded his people to pray several times throughout the day, not just when you felt like it, not just at bedtime and not just before meals, because he knew that prayer is the fuel that keeps our hope going forward. So he says, this is what love looks like. Are we loving people? Do I pray enough? Do I pray consistently? Do I pray? Am I a hopeful person in all situations, in all circumstances? Am I loving? How Paul would describe it. And then he ends by saying, contribute to the needs of the saints. Pursue hospitality. The first church is different than ours. Again, we live in a really affluent culture. The, the first church didn't have much, and that's overstating things. <laughs> in, in Rome, you know, pretty big city, oftentimes people would travel to Rome to find other places to worship. And, and you got to understand the difference. If you don't like CBC, if you don't like the message this morning, if you don't like to go to a church that randomly catches on fire, you, you, can, you, you can just go literally across the street. There are so many options, and there are good churches too. In Rome, you didn't have it. You had one. You had one chance for gospel community. You had one chance to be to have the joy of fellowship with others. You had one chance to hear the scriptures read because you couldn't look it up online and you didn't have your own copy and chances are you probably couldn't read yourself. There's one chance to find the community of saints and this is it. And so he says, be hospitable towards people. And what that looked like was Christians would pilgrimage to Rome from all over and they would just knock on your door and say, can I stay with you? And your answer was, yes. Also, who are you? There's a Greek playwright that actually talks about inns in Rome at the time, and he talks about them being so incredibly dirty, they measure the inns by the size of their cockroaches. <laughs> they were not well-liked places. And the thought of making somebody else that calls themselves a believer, someone else in your family now, stay there was unheard of. So he says, you want to know what love is? Love is not just a thought. And it's not just you being dedicated. And it's not just being passionate. Love is meeting the needs of people in powerful ways. It's giving to the needs of the saints and it's showing hospitality. It means putting yourself out of the way and sometimes out of your comfort zone so that someone else might find comfort. I love what one writer says, Christian hospitality must inconvenience us more than that of the world. We do not choose our time or our guests. 
Paul is not advocating a pleasant social exercise among friends, but the use of one's home to help even when people we don't know show up. It, it's that that will advance God's cause. So he's saying love oftentimes looks like loving people you don't know and maybe sometimes don't agree with. Am I a loving person? Paul would say it like this. Do I give even when it's inconvenient and uncomfortable? So Paul is kind of throwing in the blender all of these ideas of what love possibly could be. And, and I think my favorite part about this text, even though, again, it's kind of five feet deep and goes 50 yards instead of the other ways I like to do things and teach things, I think what I love about this is the passion from which he writes. He talks about how love is active, and he calls us to love by honoring and being devoted and praying and showing hospitality, just to name a few of the words that we see in there. The what is it new? We know we're supposed to love. That's tantamount to Jesus 101. You will be defined by how you love. The, what, the, love, the, love to, the call to love isn't new. What is new to this community was the eagerness, eagerness with which they did it. Not lacking in zeal, do it persistently, delight in loving others. The honor, rejoicing, praying, and hoping that we're called to show one another is shown with passion, dedication, and desire. We want to light the fire of love for one another and have it burn bright so that others might see it. We said it before, we don't show love at a slow pace. We show love when we sprint towards one another. And so what Paul does when he talks to this community is he says, you're not going to focus on others. You're going to focus on you and what God is doing. And then you're going to think of yourself less. And in that void, you're going to think of others. You're going to love others. And let me tell you what that looks like. That, that, that looks like you doing it sincerely. And it looks like allowing your idea of love to, to be shaped around God's idea about good. And then he has questions for us. So where I kind of want to land the plane today, it's kind of what I've been doing all service long. I'm just going to ask the questions. And instead of saying, am I a loving person? I'm going to sub in the characteristics that we find. So I'm going to go a little slow for me, so normal pace for everybody else. And I'd ask that you just sit with it. I'd ask that you close your eyes if you want to, or look awkwardly at me if you want to. <laughs> and again, the goal of today is not to induce guilt or shame. The goal of today is to have a conversation about how God is making us loving people. And, and when you do that with people that love you too, it's a joyful thing to say, hey, I have some places to move to, and I have some ways to grow. It's not housed in guilt or shame, but rather a joy that we get to do this together. God is doing something in and through this place, in and through his word, in and through one another. So I ask today, are you a loving person? Does your idea of love line up with God's idea of goodness? Are you devoted to those around you? Do you fight to give credit away or to get credit for yourself? Are you passionate about serving God's people? Are you hopeful in any and all circumstances?
Are you a prayerful person? Do you give even when it's inconvenient and uncomfortable? Because Paul would say that is a person who loves without hypocrisy. You know, I've read a lot lately, especially with the last series we did on kind of cultural engagement, about why people leave the church. And about 92% of them say they leave not because they fall out of love with Jesus or they believe Jesus doesn't love them. They leave because they believe the people that love Jesus don't love them. I think loving without hypocrisy is the way that we show people that God is still good. I think loving without hypocrisy is the way that we worship God well. And it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing that I get to do it with people because I need you in that venture. And you need me, and we need each other. Because there's gonna be days when I don't have the zeal. I just don't have the zeal. And you're thinking, when is that day? I'll tell you. Um, but on the days that I don't, you can. There's gonna be days when I've lost hope and praying's hard. And you can say, I'm praying for you, and let's pray together. There's gonna be days when I don't wanna serve. <laughs> but you can remind me that this is how we love one another. Because at the end of it, these guys came together because Jesus did something for them. And what united them was a deep love for a God who loved them in ways they never thought was possible. And so we end with communion today. We end with communion because it's the single greatest act of love we've seen. We end with communion because it's what unites us together. We end with communion because it reminds us that we are family and we want to be for one another. And the way that we do communion here is you'll stand up and walk to one of the five tables around the room. And what I love about the way that we do it is you will see somebody and they will look you in the eye and they will remind you that we're in this together. They will say, here is the blood of Christ shed for you and here is the body of Christ broken for you. You will be reminded that this loving action is an adventure that we invest in together as we move more towards Christ-likeness so that people might see more of the goodness of God. Because my favorite verse in the New Testament at the current moment is in Hebrews when it says, for the joy set before him, Christ went to the cross. He wasn't drugged there outside of his own desire. He didn't drag his feet because he loved us. He sprinted towards us and towards the cross. And so when we take communion, man, we remember what it's like to love like that. And then, and then maybe we can ask that question, am I a loving person in the same ways that Christ loved me? Let me pray for us. Then we have a few led. Pop on up and go to a table. God, I'm thankful for this group of people. I'm thankful that you define love. I'm thankful that you loved us. Spirit, as we sit with this text today, I, I just pray that you convict where conviction's needed. I pray that you give hope where hope is needed. I pray you give encouragement where encouragement is needed. And most of all, I pray that you continue to shape us in a way that looks like the love that Paul lays out here. We might be a passionate, prayerful, zealous people that fights for the good of others so that people see the goodness of God. And as we take communion, Holy Spirit, might you remind us of how much we're loved by you. I pray these things in your name. Amen.